Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors ask us for songs, and our tormentors ask us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forgot you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, how happy they will be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you so much, Randy. Uh, thank you, Toy and Laura, uh, Greg and Mark, and all who have led us. Uh, we are grateful to be with you today as we begin a new four-week series this morning, which we're choosing to call Lessons from the Quarantine. And I want to add my word of thanksgiving to that which Laura has already shared uh, to Dana Orange for sharing her insights by video today. Uh, her testimony, which I have seen three times now, is a reminder to us that we are most teachable in our seasons of distress and turmoil. I am most teachable in a crisis. When life doesn't exactly work out as I had planned, and we discover that much of life is plan B. It is one of our core values as a church that we remain teachable all of our lives. And I think you would all agree that as disciples of Jesus, we are necessarily called to be lifetime students. And so it's no accident that the word in Greek for disciple actually means student or pupil, learner. It is absolutely critical to our sanctification, to our spiritual formation, that we continue to grow in wisdom and in understanding as we attempt to live out our faith in what feels like constantly shifting sand. To the text. Psalm chapter 137 was actually composed in the midst of a crisis it was written in the midst of a political crisis, but more than that, in the midst of a religious faith crisis. In fact, the genre of material that we see in Psalm 137, it is actually a lamentation, a lament, which would be defined simply as a sad song. It is a poetic prayer that gives voice to the deepest of our human emotions. It articulates our feelings of grief. It expresses our feelings of pain, of anguish, of frustration, of disillusionment, of anger. 
all of which are incorporated in this particular chapter. Now, I need to say a a word especially about the last three verses of that chapter, which sound in their reading so offensive to our modern sensibilities, but they're actually inclusive of our rawest instincts. The psalmist is not giving us a license to justify retaliation, but is simply mentioning this as the innate impulse of one who feels victimized, of one who has been abused or alienated or oppressed. The human condition, the human experience includes these feelings of vengeance and retribution. There's no denying that. And yet, the psalmist is trying to say it is absolutely imperative that we pray these feelings out rather than act them out. One of the things we try to teach our young children, our preschoolers, is you don't need to act out every feeling that you have. We need the fruit of self-control, as we said a couple of weeks ago. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 19, where he says to them, do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And the interesting thing is that is a direct quote, that is scripture within scripture. Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, word for word. Now, I think the fact that roughly one-third of these psalms being laments implies something important. What the psalmist is implying here is that God gives us permission to vent our grievances in prayer. The psalmist gives us permission to actually air out our pain in devotion and prayer to God. And I've discovered, as some of our clergy have, that a part of our pastoral care includes honest hearing of the pain and angst of our neighbor without telling them how they should feel. You cannot argue with feelings. You don't have to act them out. But you cannot tell someone how they should feel, even if you have walked in their shoes. I remember as a boy growing up in Nashville in the 70s, there used to be a radio show. I think it was on WMAK. It could have been WKDA. I don't know. But it used to air on Friday nights, I think between 10 p.m. and midnight. It was a radio program called Crying Time. The program was based on an old Buck Owens song that was made famous by Ray Charles, and I can still remember the words. I realize I'm dating myself. Some of you can remember these words. It goes like this. Oh, it's crying time again. You're going to leave me. I can see that far away look in your eye. I can tell by the way you hold me, darling, that it won't be long before it's crying time. And for two solid hours, every Friday night, the DJ would then just play lamentations, sad songs. And I I don't know why, but for me as a teenager at 15 or 16, where I felt every emotion, every feeling in the world, there was something kind of comforting about those sad songs, something consoling. 
As I grew older, this is the reason that I had to listen to B.B. King every now and then. B.B. King is not in the hymn book, but the thrill is gone speaks to my soul sometimes. It's the blues. There are others like Eric Clapton, No Tears in Heaven, Vince Gill, singers who sing songs that express what we suppress and hide. So many of us are taught by our cultural upbringing to mask our tears so that we don't appear weak or overly sensitive. But you notice in the scripture that God actually gives us permission to weep. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself knew what it was to weep? At the tomb of his best friend Lazarus with Martha and Mary, Jesus wept. On the night before he gave his life in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer, he wept. Overlooking Jerusalem on that night, weeping over the plight of the prophets and those who came before Jesus, wept. And God gives us permission to cry. It's ironic, isn't it, that the the, the most redemptive event in the life of Israel, the Exodus, actually begins with one line in Exodus 3, verse 7, where God says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cries. I don't know who said it, but I certainly agree with it. Crying is how the heart speaks when the lips can't explain. It's all right to cry. Psalm 137 was written in the darkest days of Judean history. We refer to it as the, as the exile. In or around the year 587 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar's troops stormed the holy city. They destroyed Jerusalem, they burned the temple, and they deported the leading citizens. They left the poor in the area to till the land but without the infrastructure and without the symbolism that defined their heritage. They banished the brightest and best to Babylon, all the princes, princesses, prophets, and priests, gone. From Jerusalem to Babylon, it's roughly a 900-mile trip that would take no less than four months. Now, to be sure, these people they were no stranger to wandering in the wilderness. They had wandered in the wilderness before, during the Exodus, but that was a different day. In the Exodus, they were moving towards a promise, but in the exile, they're moving away from a promise. The chosen on that trail of tears are feeling unchosen. Among those refugees were the likes of Deutero-Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. They were in that crowd. In fact, most of you know that Jeremiah wrote an anthology, a collection of sad songs, lamentations, depicting this time. In fact, it's called Lamentations. It's in your Bible. And most of you in that section, the glue of the page is still glued together sad songs. I want to give you just a taste of Jeremiah's version of crying time. 
Lamentations 1. How empty the city, once teeming with people. A widow, this city. Once in the front rank of nations, once the queen of the ball, she's now a drudge in the kitchen. She cries herself to sleep each night, tears soaking her pillow. No one's left among her lovers to sit and hold her hand. Her friends have all dumped her. After years of pain and labor, Judah has gone into exile. She camps out among the nations. She never feels at home. Hunted by all, she, she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Zion's roads weep, empty of pilgrims headed to the feasts. All her gates are deserted, her priests in despair. Her virgins are sad, how, how bitter her fate. Her enemies have become her masters. Her foes are living it up because God laid her low, punishing her repeated rebellions. Her children, prisoners of the enemy, are trudging a trail of tears into exile. It's crying time for these Hebrews. To make matters worse, when the exiles arrived in Babylon and set up their camp by the river Euphrates, which was actually an irrigation ditch, a canal, the captors who were keeping guard demanded a little hymn sing in the camp. They said, sing us one of those old songs that you used to sing in Zion. And in fact, Randy, in, in the translation you read said they asked them for mirth. That's an interesting word for mirth. It means the soldiers wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be amused by humiliating these refugees. Sing us one of those old songs you used to sing. And they tried. But every time they opened their mouths, the music didn't play. <laughs> Nothing came out. And all they could do was weep. They lost their land. They lost their homes. They lost their church. They lost their culture, they lost their history, and now they're on the line, they're on the border of losing their song. L listen to the graphic imagery of the psalmist. We hung our harps in the poplar trees, and we looked at each other and said, how can we sing the Lord's song in an irrigation ditch? One of the most difficult things, I think, for us in our quarantine, in this pandemic, has been the loss of music. It's a rough thing when Music City ceases to make music. The Skirmerhorn is closed. Bridgestone is locked up. The chancel, for the most part, has had no choir, no full choir, no orchestra, no bells. In fact, you know that we have resorted on most Sundays to old recordings that sometimes haunt us and bring us to tears. Chancel Choir, Sunshine Choir, we heard it before the prelude today. We can't fill the chancel, we cannot fill the choir loft as we did six months ago, and as a result, we're learning something. 
we're learning or perhaps relearning how vital music is to our faith. Music is the language of the soul, and it's a hard thing when Music City ceases to make music. It's amazing the power of music to evoke memory. In fact, whenever I hear that old song, Love Lifted Me, suddenly I find myself as a boy in a campground in North Georgia singing that wonderful song with the saints. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the water lifted me, now safe and my love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Whenever I hear the hymn, here I am, Lord, I'm in this building, it's packed full of people in the sanctuary. There are pastors all over this area and we stand up to sing and each pastor is out singing the other and the ordinands are waiting to be ordained and the ceiling almost comes unglued from the music of praise but it's empty. When I hear that old song, Pass It On, which came out in the 70s, I'm a teenager, I'm sitting on a stone, I'm sitting on a stone fence at Beersheba Springs. I'm 15 years old and I'm rededicating my life to Jesus. It's amazing, music. I thought about it this week that the last in-person gathering that we had here in this sanctuary with a crowd was on Sunday afternoon, March the 8th. The combined choirs and praise band filled the chancel with, with songs of praise. It, it was like a revival. And we sang together my favorite new Chris Tomlin song, Is He Worthy? And we sang, He Is, He Is. But how do you sing the Lord's song with a face covering? <laughs> How do you sing those songs with a mask in the midst of a pandemic when you can't be in person? It's a good question. It's the exact question that was raised by these refugees, but it's not just about music. It's about their soul. It's about their faith. What they're really asking is, has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten his promise? Is God unchoosing us? They're losing their song. <laughs> Historians tell us that in ancient days, it was believed that if your nation suffered the defeat of another nation, then it meant that their God was bigger than your God. The victims would forfeit their confession and give allegiance to the new tribal God of the victorious nation, but not these Jews. They didn't do that because they never stopped singing. <laughs> they didn't lose their song. In fact, they made covenant beside that canal to never forget. Listen again to verses five and six. If I forget, O Jerusalem, 
Let my right hand wither. What does that mean? The right hand, it's the conductor's hand. It's the symbol of music. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. What does that mean? That's, that's the tongue of the singer, the worshiper. If I do not remember you, they covenant. They covenanted together. They they vowed that they would never forget. Now, I for one think it's a miracle that the Jewish people actually survived as a race, as a people. Because the policy of the Babylonians was to amalgamate this defeated nation into a predominant culture so that they would gradually lose their language. They would gradually lose their tradition, their history, their heritage, their faith, and their song. It was a form of ethnic cleansing. But it was not to be for these chosen ones because they kept singing. They held on to their faith. They wouldn't bow their knee to any lesser God. They never forgot Yahweh. And more importantly, Yahweh never forgot them. This is a God who never breaks a promise, who always remembers his people. It's amazing how many times that word remember is in the scripture. The Hebrew word is zakar. It means imprint. Remember the rock from which you were hewn. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember the deeds of old which the Lord has done. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, and the Holy Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance when I have gone. Remember your first love. They never forgot it. These Hebrew children learned a vital lesson in the quarantine. They discovered that God is not confined to the temple. God is not confined to the sanctuary. God is not restricted to an institution or a ritual. God is not confined to a sacrificial system or even to a priesthood or to a place or to a city or to a politic. They discovered in their quarantine that God was just as present in their refugee camp as he was in the Holy of Holies. To be sure, these exiles settled in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. They settled in Babylon as they were taught to do by Jeremiah. They assimilated in to the Babylonian culture. Some even took on Babylonian names like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they never actually became Babylonians because they were first and foremost sons and daughters of God. And they never forgot it. And neither did God. As people of faith who define our identity in that baptismal bowl, I have to tell you, we too, 
we're exiles. We're resident aliens. We're called to live in Babylon, but not be of Babylon. To be in the world, but not of the world. We're resident aliens. This is what the Apostle Peter said in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, remember that you don't belong to this world. You're temporary residents, exiles. So resist the desires of Babylon that is battling against your soul. There's one other verse, one other psalm that speaks to this insight. It's Psalm 90, verse 1. It, too, was written by one of these refugees. Thou, O Lord, hast been our home in all generations. These exiles learned that home is not just a place. It's a relationship. And that you can actually be at home even in the most unpromising seasons, not because of where you are, but because of who is with you. But you've got to hold on to your song. One example, and I'm finished. When I was a young pastor in South Atlanta, Fayetteville, I used to lead worship on some Sunday afternoons in one of the nursing homes. I can see her in my mind's eye even now, one of the residents, a woman who had actually lost her feet because of the diabetes. She never missed worship. They pushed her in her wheelchair to the center. The pianist began to play. She never missed. She tolerated my sermons, but she lived for the music. She loved the hymns. I've never seen a woman more full of joy in my life. You could always hear her voice above the others singing the songs of Zion. I often was curious. I wondered how on earth can that woman sing these songs with such joy in her condition? And I asked her one day, how is it, Miss Johnson, that you're able to do that? And she thought for a moment, and she looked at me and said, Preacher boy, she always called me Preacher boy. Those old songs take me to places that my feet have never been. Well, it was obvious to me that she's not from around here. She's a resident alien in uncharted territory and she's still singing never lost her song and that song has become her hope and her joy because it reminds her of a God who never forgets his own and that's our salvation thanks be to God amen